1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for today's interview with Joe Esposito, who is senior partner of Clark and Esposito. Today's guest is here to talk about scholarly communication. That is scholarly, small s, communication, small c. Joe Esposito has a wealth of experience throughout academic publishing. Joe Esposito has a lot to tell us and we here at Scholarly Communication, big S, big C, want to hear. To get things started, I've selected an important essay of Joe Esposito's, published online in the year 2003, the title, The Process Book. It's a speculative essay about electronic texts, an essay that became a software project called the Process Book Operating System, and this project, PBOS, for short, put into practice the book as a set of capabilities for all users, both creator-side users and receiver-side users. And the project presented the book not as an object that does something per se, but as a system that enables other people to do what they need to or want to do. I've selected this essay-slash-project because so much there is still so very relevant today. And also I've selected it because it contains an outlook Some issues that Joe felt would require further elaboration in the future, a future that, quite frankly, is now. So what better way to track the development of Joe's work in publishing and Joe's thinking about publishing than to track the development of those then-future-now-present issues? Here I quote, Where does a processed book end and a wiki begin? Conceptually, a wiki is a subset of the processed book idea but we chose to implement PBOS without wiki capability. PBOS puts the original book or text at the center of a universe of annotation, but the text itself remains inviolate. Wikis, on the other hand, allow for the communal rewriting of a text. Not all process books need to be wikis, any more than all hard copy books must have color illustrations. It seems probable that a taxonomy of subgenres of process books will emerge over time, how best to accommodate the range of thinking about interactive features? The sheer mass of the literature on different ways of enhancing a text, via hyperlinks, multimedia, smart processes, etc., makes it difficult to come up with a workable overview. So with PBOS, we have not tried to anticipate all the kinds of interaction that various people have come up with, but to create an environment where all kinds of interaction could find a home. The measure of success of this strategy will be in the number and kind of features that other developers add to BBOS. What will it take to affect the transition from books as conventionally conceived of to process books? We believe that all books will someday be process books, but how to get there from where we are today is a difficult challenge. Our view is that this transition will require attention and investment from all sectors, And we thus designed PBOS to accommodate for both for-profit and for non-profit activities. So let's begin the conversation. Joe Esposito, the world of academic publishing. Joe, welcome to Scholarly Communication.
0: Uh, Thank you for having me.
1: I suppose my first question is going to clearly come off of, of some of the citation there I did of your own essay, and maybe I'll just start off with, How uh, had you ever envisioned uh, that the process of that 2003 essay would, 20 years later, <laughs> enter into a thing called the podcast, which technically, according to the OED, entered the language the year after that, 2004?
0: Well, there's, there's no question that anticipating what comes next is a fool's errand. Uh, it's so easy to make predictions and so easy to, for them to be wrong and then we open up the archive and find out how foolish we were to be able to think that we could predict the future. Uh, When I wrote the process book, and it's worth bearing in mind that that's 20 years ago, uh, the background for that was not technology. The background for that was something that I saw developing in literary study. Uh, I was intrigued by the emergence of Uh, modernist aesthetics with people like T.S. Eliot, Ezra Ezra Pound, James Joyce, Virginia Woolf, people of that uh, ilk. And what I began to see was this notion of the text and the narrative had begun to break down in favor of works that referenced other works and also signaled the method of composition even while you were reading them. Uh, I don't want this conversation to become uh, too highfalutin here, Uh, but to bring it down to earth, um, what I saw in modernism was the invention that many technologists then implemented in fact. Uh, And that is what the process book is about. It is not about technology. It is about how texts emerge through long cultural processes which may be independent of the technologies we use at any given time. Uh, So to just cite one example, Uh, anybody who's ever read the poetry of Ezra Pound is familiar with the fact that uh, there are all these references to other poems, and you struggle to try to make sense of what's going on because you may not have read the other poems. Uh, This is a common problem that is not restricted to arty uh, poetry or books, or for that matter, movies. Um, However, with the hyperlink, you have the potential for identifying every one of those earlier references and build them right into your text. So this is a way that the process book has become the instantiation of modernist theory from, from a century ago or more.
1: That's a really interesting source of inspiration for, for that idea. And, and it's quite clear from the essay, um, which uh, I would encourage, uh, listeners to go out and read for themselves it's quite clear that this was not a technology project that that, that the project really came afterwards uh, when you were approached Um, but the ideas in it are important to technology and important to what's going on also in academic publishing now Um, one of the things that you you broach there and and, and your explanation of the origin of the idea is is an idea that's also brought up in uh, John Thompson's book, Book Wars, The Digital Revolution in Publishing. He talks about the difference between a form and a format. And he goes into, for instance, the evolution of the ebook. And very few people saw that this was a new format to redo the book, to do something that was not even book-like. And most people just saw it as a way of digitalizing what they were already doing. So that would be the form, whereas the format is to revolutionize the book, to call it something else even. Are these, are these two categories something that you can think and apply to what's going on in academic publishing?
0: Uh, yes. Um, I think that the notion of form and format is absolutely essential. And we should listen very seriously uh, to what John had to say about that. Um, I think that when you look at the practical matter of, of how books are published today or how texts are published today, you find that, that people fall into two groups. And I'm not suggesting that either group is uh, dominant or is going to uh, lead the way in the future or is, uh, uh, has more influence than the other, but there are two groups. One is we have a traditional setup. And the question is how can you use digital technology in a way that allows that traditional setup to endure and prosper. And the other is let's overthrow the traditional setup. Let's get rid of all of these things and start anew with a fresh sheet of paper, if you uh, forgive an old fashioned metaphor. Um, So you have these two groups, the technologists are certainly aligned with the latter group. They want to start all over with a whole new infrastructure for thinking about books. Uh, but then you have the people who are actually uh, raised in book culture and many of them look backward. And I don't mean that in a bad way. in, uh, in the sense that tradition can be very uh, enriching for us today. And they say, well, we don't want to lose these things. Uh, so you have that built in tension uh, between the two. And I think that the two parties often don't like each other. Uh, so in academic publishing, You have really traditional books that are then rendered in electronic form and they're not all that different from print books, uh, except that you read them on a device instead of on paper. Uh, And then you have the emerging world growing rapidly of digital humanities, where the texts themselves are in a form that could have no paper equivalent. So you have these two forces moving forward. Now, if they actually end up going to war with one another, who can say? Uh, but they today are uh, coexisting.
1: And you bring up the digital humanities there, which is a very interesting point, but my, my mind races directly into science. And in fact, in my mind, you talk about two categories, the traditionalists, if, we, if, we, if you like, and the technologists so it might serve as a quick label anyway for the two uh, groups. I often think of the groups, the scholars and the scientists, which would correspond in some way to this traditionalist scholar and technologist science uh, scientist. And some of that comes, again, we don't need the technology somehow to understand the mentalities involved here. This this brings me back again to your essay, uh, The Processed Book. Um, essentially, if you look at what scholarship is, it's it's always language bound and it has its traditional forms. People are interested in publishing a book as a book, that is their publication. And they still talk about things inside of the book like, pacing and bringing the reader along and developing the idea or the story. These are functions inside of a book that, A, look entirely differently than they would to a scientist inside of his or her article, but B, they're not even really the functions that a, a researching scientist cares about, right? <laughs> I mean, If you're going to put out a seven to 10 page article you're just, you're just trying to find room in there for the facts, um, issues of pacing and, and expression and so on. I mean, really, don't these fall by the wayside?
0: I think that there's a fundamental difference between a seven to 15 page article and a 300 to 400 page book. Um, and uh, they will definitely have different ways that they operate. But I would not say it's a question of scientists on one side and humanists on the other. Uh, There may be a spectrum where more people in the sciences think in terms of short takes or brief articles and more people in the humanities think in terms of longer takes and and book length works. Uh, But I don't think that that has to do with the nature of the discipline so much as it has to do with the requirements of the communication itself. Uh, A scientist may be working in the laboratory and has a goal of capturing what has happened in the laboratory, exposing the methodology and publishing the findings that can frequently take place in a short article. If however, somebody says, uh, how has this particular field of science developed? Who originated it? What are the other traditions that have been brought to bear on that? Where is it today and where do we think it's going? You'd have a hard time doing that in the seven to 10 page essay. That's when the book length work uh, becomes valuable, so I think this is more a function of the f- um, of the purpose of the communication than the nature of the field itself.
1: That's that's really fascinating to, to make that distinction. So, y- you could imagine in, in biology just as much a book a book length. Um, topic worthy of study, as you could in, let's say, medieval studies, uh, a topic worthy of study that actually fulfills different uh, communicative uh, requirements and says, what was the methodology? What were the results? And how do we situate this in the next step in the research? Is, Am I following along then now?
0: Absolutely. You've got it exactly right. But let me share an anecdote with you. Uh, I was speaking to Uh, the provost of a major university a few years back and we were talking about the university press on his campus and he said, I don't understand why we're publishing books. I'm a much published scholar but I haven't read a book in years. Very interesting statement. His field had uh, almost gone completely over to uh, article uh, publishing and journal publishing uh, and the small amount of book publishing in this field had virtually disappeared. Well, What's at issue there is another aspect of the audience. Uh, if you're a scientist, you write short articles because this is what gets you tenure. This is what gets you a promotion. This is what allows you to go to uh, grants making bodies and getting money to hire postdoctoral students uh, and to build out your laboratory. So, another aspect of form and format is the business model that these communications are placed into there is money in articles in the sciences. sciences. There is very little money in books in the sciences. You switch over to history, anthropology, uh, literary criticism, and the the whole situation gets turned on its head. Uh, The tenure and promotion committees are looking for books that are published, preferably with a university press. So when we talk about where the book is going, where texts are going. When we talk about print versus digital, we can't escape the fact that all these things live within an environment of people pursuing their own interests, their personal interests, uh, and that has an economic uh, basis as well.
1: So does that mean that in the humanities or in the social sciences where, uh, as, as you say, and as I've heard elsewhere, and, and please uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong there, the, publishing inside of journals has increased. Does that mean that this is not necessarily a following of science, Um, you know, the sort of uh, accusation that's been made, uh, certainly through the decades that social scientists are Trying to want to be more scientific, perhaps in some of their projects, uh, demand. This is rather an issue of economics, university presses, and the large uh, corporations that run the journals, and what outlets or venues are becoming available, and how that plays into the academic reward system and career system.
0: Exactly. And I would say all of the above and remind you that on a spring day, you go out for a look and a uh, walk and you pass a sunflower, and you'll see that the sunflower is faced toward the sun. Uh, that is how the economy works. That is how publishing works. It's faced to the source of of, uh, of energy. It's, it's faced toward the source of, the, of its economics. Uh, and without taking business models and economics into account, we can't really talk about digital humanities or journal publishing or book publishing or, or research, or any of these things. All of these things exist within an economic environment, and to ignore that is at our, is at our peril.
1: And that brings us then uh, right back into the thick of this, the university presses on the one side and the companies running the, the journals on the other. Uh, the way that funding works in the humanities versus the sciences is, is, is fundamentally different. Uh, the university presses seem to operate more in a grant-free area, whereas STEM is bringing in all the time, grant money, covering also university overheads.
0: Yes, that is exactly right. Uh, And that has an impact on the kind of publications that emerge. Uh, Certainly in the uh, sciences now, uh, there's a very, very big move uh, for all uh, uh, science publishing to become open access, for example. There is no comparable move in the humanities and there's no comparable move in book publishing for that to be the case. Uh, So we have very, very different environments for books and journals, for humanities and the sciences, but it's not as though the sciences are somehow uh, born digital or or destined to be digital, and the humanities are born in print and destined to be analog forever. That's just not the case. There are just other things that are bearing down on these um, areas for publication.
1: I know there's going to be listeners out there or if I turn around later on this week and, and, and go into the, one of the labs I work with, with uh, my writing students and tell them, you know, your research article has an economic base, you know, unless they're a Marxist, I know some people's hairs are going to stand up on the backs of their necks. They're going to be thinking, no, this is the communicative form that fits science. In other words, our communication follows our knowledge base, follows the way that we do research. And somebody out there writing a book is doing a different sort of research. Now, that may all be the case. And I think in some ways it certainly is. The project chooses in some way the purposes, the audience, and the format that you choose. Nonetheless, I, I think it's just worth clearly stating, maybe even giving an example or so, why it is that economics also has this major influence on the way knowledge is known, gets known. I mean, that's, that's, that's my motto in this podcast, the way knowledge gets known. That's why I'm so fascinated to hear from you, your economic viewpoint on this.
0: Well, um, those who try to overlook that or ignore that, or resent the fact that economics is a factor, um, they're welcome to do that. Um, there's nothing uh, there's no reason to say that everybody must understand everything about what they do. Uh, there is a an aphorism that I particularly enjoy, and it is that no one in the world knows how to make a pencil. And when you think about that, Uh, you immediately say how is it possible that no one knows how to make a pencil? There are pencils everywhere. Uh, We can, you know, we buy them two dozen at a time at the local office product store. Um, Why can we say that no one can make a pencil? But of course what it means is that the number of steps that go into making the pencil are uh, so many in number, so complex in their range, so complex in their kind, that no one person knows everything. No one knows how to mine the graphite to refine the graphite uh, to grow the tree chop down the tree to uh, uh, get the little pieces of wood into the right shape to get the graphite into the little tube uh, to affix the eraser at the end uh, which brings up the question of where does the rubber for the eraser come from uh, no one person knows all of that and when a scientist says or a humanist says i don't think about." the money at all. I don't think about the economic environment. I don't think about those incentives. I'm just pursuing our research. The answer is, and go do that. That's your job. Uh, the point I'm making is only that other people have different jobs. Somebody's in charge of the eraser. Somebody's in charge of the uh, of the lead that goes into the pencil. Somebody else is in charge of painting the, the wood, that funny yellow-orange color that we always see with uh, pencils. No one has to know the whole thing, but still it happens in the end. We do get the pencil, we get to use it. So I I don't really um, worry very much that people object to any kind of uh, economic explanation of what they do. Um, It's really not their problem. And we can't ask everybody to respond to all problems all the time.
1: That's a very enlightened view and also enlightening example that that, that really, um, I think, uh, makes the point as, cl- as clearly as as we're going to. I'd like to follow up on some of the things that you said, particularly open access from one particular vantage point. I've, I've, I've looked quite thoroughly at um, the uh, company you work for, Clark and Esposito, and um, many of the... Uh, fantastic, successful projects that you've uh, been able to uh, complete. And what would really interest me, especially from the viewpoint of somebody who works in English for academic purposes, in other words, the kind of people who are trying to help scholars and scientists, in my case, particularly scientists, publish their research, communicate their findings, right? That's, that's, uh, That's our main aim as 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 a group of professionals and we're often talking about communities of discourse in a particular field of knowledge and i was very surprised to see at a business like yours and with an economic viewpoint as you have you're talking about quite similar things um so for example, and, and this, is, this is going to lead me to my question or the opportunity for you to just share, um, when you talked about the different methods of market analysis, or there tools for assessment of current situations and circumstances of a, of a business? So maybe say one society journal and its situation in a publishing landscape and whether or not it should launch a new journal um, next to other commercial ventures. It was very interesting to, see, interesting to see these more theoretical issues showing up also on the economic end.
0: Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, and let, let me underscore the fact that we very much work within the scholarly community. I mean, because we are business people, it uh, doesn't mean that we do not share the values of the academic community, that we aren't uh, intensely interested in scholarship and the outputs of uh, scholarship and the process of scholarship. You know, We are part of, very much part of that. Um, the thing that we have found in our work uh, is that so much of the wonderful work in scientific and uh, other academic publishing uh, is being done by people who don't have experience with marketplace issues uh, with publishing as a process, uh, and they tend to think of the entire process as purely editorial. You know, What's important is what's inside the book the content. Uh, What's important is the content of the paper. Uh, We call that the editorial fallacy. And it's a fallacy not because the content is not important, but because it doesn't uh, explain the entire picture. Uh, How do you get noticed? What are the formats you have to be in? Uh, Where should you publish? How should you publish? When should you publish? Do you publish a long work or a short work? you have to get involved with social media. If you're involved with social media, how do you do this in a way that does not become overly time-consuming and in fact, at times, exasperating? Uh, So all of these are important questions that are separate from the content of the publication.
1: Is there um, one example that you could perhaps uh, provide us um, where the sorts of things that uh, Clark and Esposito did for any particular society um, or a publisher, it really showed that, okay, through the economic viewpoint, through the economic analysis, we're also getting a picture of what it is that this particular client of, of your company wants to do scientifically. What is it that they want? How did they want to position their journal? Let's say, this is just a random example. The example is entirely yours, across from other journals and that economic input from your side also gave them that fuller picture.
0: Well, the example that immediately springs to mind is not one that we worked on, but one that uh, I personally experienced as a consumer. Uh, And it was absolutely astounding. uh, and, uh, and outstanding as well. Um, there is a cosmologist at the University of North Carolina, named Katie Mack. Uh, Mack is M-A-C-K. Uh, she wrote a book co- uh, called The End of Everything, and I regret that I cannot tell you the name of the publisher offhand. Uh, the End of Everything is a uh, summary of all the different ways cosmologists view the world ending at some point. Uh, so there's a lot in there about astrophysics, cosmology, uh, the philosophical and theoretical underpinnings of these things. Uh, all these different scenarios that have been developed are explained clear, uh, clearly. Uh, there is a minimum of mathematics in there. Uh, she is a terrific explainer. Anyway, I became aware of this book in of all places on Twitter. Uh, I started to find that in my Twitter feed, more and more people were making references. To this, uh, to this particular uh, professor, and she was on Twitter. I began to follow her, and she would talk about different things. She would talk about different scientific issues. Uh, she's very playful and very funny, uh, and really a, a truly inviting personality. Then when I heard she was going to have um, a book published, I immediately went down and ordered the book. Now, I would not know who Katie Mack is. I would not know about her work as a cosmologist had she not been out there on social media, and Twitter in particular, actively writing things every day, those short 140, 280 character messages, linking to other things, offering her opinions about things, raising questions. So here is somebody who is marketing her book months, even years before the book was published. That's part of the economics of scholarly publishing today.
1: And that brings me (laughs) to your very interesting article, which was just published, I believe, in January, um, about the metaverse. uh, Because you mentioned there Twitter being a place for discovery. And Facebook, regardless of how we feel about Facebook, now called Meta, as being a a wonderful place for um, shared spaces. And you suggest that the metaverse might be a place for demonstrations. Now, I suppose... Some listeners are going to start to wonder if they're hearing right, (laughs) because scholarly publishing and metaverse don't seem to be immediate partners. But you're already actually making the case for it when you give us that example.
0: Yeah, I think that one of the things that is is misunderstood today is this notion that the real stuff, the good stuff begins with the most sophisticated people in uh, academic environments and then move to professional environments and over time they trickle down into the consumer market and the consumer market begins to pick these things up. That may have been true once upon a time, Uh, now it is the opposite. Uh, Now because of uh, instantaneous global communications, what begins to happen in consumer markets where people are not experts, heaven knows uh, if you look at Facebook you'd be hard-pressed to find an expert. Uh, And what happens then is the various pieces of infrastructure get built in these consumer markets, and then people who are more serious professionally and academically begin to build on top of that. Uh, That's the way that works today. So one cannot really be involved in scholarly communications today on the publishing side. I'm not talking about being an author or a researcher. You cannot be involved on the publishing side without being um, remaining abreast of what's happening in consumer media. It matters very much what Hollywood is doing. It matters very, very much uh, what you see on Facebook and Twitter. All of these things later come to inform what we do in scholarly communications. So this notion that there is an ivory tower uh, and then once you step onto a campus, uh, you can ignore all of these things that happen in the consumer world. That is just simply no longer true. Uh, And successful publishers and successful authors working with these publishers are increasingly aware how porous the walls of the campus have become.
1: You provide a wonderful illustration of this in the article by talking about in the New York Times, being inspired to think outside the box in relation to the metaverse, not in the op-ed page, not somewhere else where people would be looking for the big ideas, but in the fashion section <laughs> where a virtual wedding celebration was the thing that got you thinking, yeah, okay, this is how the consumer market is going to start to trickle into academic research.
0: Yeah, you know, isn't that just a, a wonderful illustration of this? I, 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 I literally laughed out loud uh, when I read that article. Um, everybody is arguing and they're arguing in the most serious tones and often pompously about the metaverse. Uh, And we all know how awful a person Mark Zuckerberg is and how he's destroying democracy. We've heard that one uh, as well. Um, And uh, then you find somebody who is completely ignoring this whole conversation of uh, significant social consequence, the future of democracy, the nature of communication, what is truth in the online world. All of these very, very serious uh, topics. And they simply uh, decide to do some wedding planning. And the fact is that in all of our lives, uh, when we stop thinking about the very serious concerns we have professionally, all of us are involved with going to uh, uh, weddings and unfortunately funerals. Uh, But we go out, we meet people in restaurants and bars, we chat in the corridors and so forth. Uh, this is very much part of our lives as well. And what we're going to be seeing more and more of is the so-called metaverse, and by which I mean uh, augmented reality, virtual reality uh, capabilities, are going to become more and more widespread in our day-to-day lives. And then people will learn to adapt uh, uh, adapt them for professional uses. So the example that immediately comes to mind is uh, you know what happens if um, you have to teach a young doctor uh, a new technique of surgery? You simply bring somebody in off the street and say, open them up and uh, go at it? Or are you going to say, well, maybe we can do this with simulations. Maybe we can begin training our doctors for surgery uh, by having virtual uh, environments where they can do, these, uh, do this training so that before they actually begin to work with a live patient, uh, they have some idea of the issues they're going to be uh, dealing with maybe virtual reality, maybe the metaverse is going to train the physician uh, who uh, performs an operation on you or, or your children and saves a life. So rather than just dismiss all of this stuff because Mark Zuckerberg likes it, it's just silly.
1: You, you bring that sobering light into uh, the whole question when you, you just point blank, ask, yeah, what are the properties of the metaverse? What does it do? What can it do? So there's this view of it as a tool and what are people using it for and what could it be used for? And you offer there a fantastic illustration of how it could be used to, to everyone's benefit. The other quote there that I really like, and this brings me back to this sort of controversy, controversial bit of our whole conversation so far, certainly for many scientists and scholars, I would imagine. You say, we all work together unknowingly, making things better faster, cheaper. Now, if I'm reading that right, that seems to encapsulate some of what you've said about this consumer market trickling into the academic research side, or if I may extend that, the requirements of communication having their effects on the nature of a discipline. Does that same logical connections in your mind?
0: Yeah, I think that they are. And I, the way I tend to think about it myself is to space to, um, uh, with tongue in cheek, say you know, there are two kinds of people in the world. Uh, there are the big picture people uh, who see things from a top-down perspective. And there's the other group who sees things from a bottom-up perspective. Uh, I'm very much a bottoms-up. I, I, I said bottoms-up, which refers to drinking. I should say bottom-up, shouldn't I? Uh, although maybe <laughs> that would be more fun in it. <laughs> um, uh, I'm very much a bottom-up uh, person. Uh, I I am attracted to environments where many people... Uh, independently start to pursue their own projects and interests as distinct from an environment where there's an organization that's put in charge of the whole thing and they come up with their notion of the future of the world and identify everybody's uh, place in it. it. That just does not speak to my experience because my experience is that people are almost endlessly and effortlessly creative. They can't help themselves. And what you want to do is to create environments where people can be creative and innovative, as opposed to one where somebody believes they figured the whole thing out. Uh, So uh, I do think that the multiplicity of publishers, the the multiplicity of journals, the multiplicity of academic research institutions, all of these things uh, are a good thing because somebody on the other side of the planet is doing something that may intersect with your work a few years from now, and you don't even know who that person is today.
1: And I I suppose on this big end, this controversy, and one last thing that I'd like to explore is uh, you have the bottom-up and the top-down view, and I think that's a very cogent way of trying to get at how certain people approach their work. Um, An academic his or her work and... uh, A publisher, maybe his or her work. I I would be interested to know, though, how how much would you say is, uh, let's say, a reasonable mix for somebody? Um, Let's just take the the STEM scientist um, who's publishing her next uh, journal article. How much would you say would be a a reasonable mix of also the publishing side in her uh, set of purposes, which are clearly primarily going to be in the lab and on the research question, the materials the methods, et cetera, right? But um, from what I'm hearing, it's not reasonable to just end there.
0: It's reasonable to end there if you have a support system that does the other work for you. Now, who has that support system? Established scientists do. You have a lab, perhaps, with a communications director who handles a lot of this work. You may have other people working in your lab who Uh, may be able to uh, uh, co-author articles with the principal investigator and so forth. Uh, The younger academic starting out has greater challenges because the the infrastructure for publication is not easily uh, uh, to be found at hand. Uh, So I think that you have different challenges at different parts uh, of your career. So I think The way to find the balance is to say, where are you today and what are you trying to accomplish to move yourself to the next stage? And that is not the same answer for every person at the same time. That varies with with people, with the discipline, uh, and where people are in their particular um, career trajectories.
1: Mm, yeah, no, that, that, that does certainly make a lot of sense. You're going to find different uh, scientists differently situated, um, according to how much support that they're going to be getting. And yet, as in English for academic purposes professional, as I mentioned earlier, we think all the time about communication and the support network that you've just talked about would make me think of one, or two, one of two options, or again, a mix, which very often occurs. Either you get into the lab, a communication professional, and I'm talking about the sort who can really be, as a non-scientist, writing the article with you to its best rhetorical um, purpose, because that person knows the outside, the other side, the market side, the publishing side, and the language side. Or you get people being trained in that, the scientists themselves. And then the English for academic purposes professional steps back. And just leaves them to it just as at some point the professor in biology steps back and leaves his or her last class of students to the actual lab work and then again as i said perhaps some mix
0: yes uh, i think all that is true but i would be hard-pressed to tell you where you should draw the line and how you would advise any individual about that the only uh wise words that i personally have ever heard about this is uh, the key to being getting published is to write all the time. Um, that you're much better off with a profusion of publications in different forms and different formats than of creating the one uh, iconic work that you wish to be remembered for. Uh, so productivity is a very, very big part of this. Uh, I know that um, one of the things that uh, trade book editors look for all the time, and obviously this is a different part of the publishing world, but trade book editors in, in assessing an author uh, like to see how many other things the author has written and how long it takes them to get things done. They value productivity. What they don't want is to sign the contract for the book that never comes in. So for the author to be showing a constant stream of publications, you know, blog posts, magazine articles, short stories, novels, whatever it happens to be, is something then that gets the attention of people who do have the means uh, to move things forward. In a university environment, one of the challenges to try to get the attention of the university-wide communications people. And a good way to do this, of course, is to court them. A good way to do this is to be very prolific in one's publications.
1: That's wonderful to hear that <laughs> this is one of the sort of mantras I have in, in in my teaching is to write regularly. And to hear from the economic side, the publishing side, that you would probably pass on much the same advice is, is certainly heartening. <laughs> um, I did mention open access, um, and we haven't quite got around to that. Um, what, one, one story on the uh, Clark and Esposito site, uh, site that sort of caught my attention was uh, it, it repeated uh, interest in the uh, open access mandates that uh, come down on uh, journals. Uh, one of them is the transformative agreements, for instance, that are widespread here in Europe, where I am and uh, what it is that journals then need to do to be able to comply uh, with these particular mandates.
0: Well, that is uh, the topic of the moment. isn't it? Uh, yeah, As open access increases, a lot of the small scholarly societies are ill-equipped to deal with some of these questions. It's not unusual that you have a scholarly society that has a single journal and a total publishing staff of one person. Uh, and suddenly uh, you have to get on top of all of these issues of regulatory compliance uh, for your parent university, uh, for the United States, if it's a federal grant uh, for Europe and all of the different regulatory issues that you have in Europe and so on. How do these small publishers do that? That's actually when uh, I'm, I'm about to make what's going to sound like a pitch for our company. So I, I apologize in advance. But that's when people reach outside and they reach outside either to consultants or they often reach outside by making arrangements with the larger publishers and ask the larger publishers uh, to handle this for them. Uh, That's called a licensing agreement. And that is one of the things that keeps us most active right now. Uh, It is very hard to stay on top of all of this. And, uh, And indeed, during the course of the week, as I look at the messages in our internal Teams account, All these questions about the new regulatory requirements are always uh, uh, at the very uh, front of the queue uh, because there are so many of these things and the requirements becoming more and more complex. Here again, it's not just one set of rules and there's no single thing you can say to a society publisher, a society academic publisher. Uh, You can't because the rules are different in the United States and Canada and Europe. Uh, They vary by field. Uh, There are sometimes rules imposed by specific granting bodies. So there's no easy answer to this and the complexity is growing at a very, very fast clip.
1: It's so complex that um, the sorts of journals that people would just sort of line up next to each other, nature, cell, science, they are facing these things also in very different ways. I'm certainly going to provide a link at the bottom of uh, this interview for people interested to something called The Brief, which is a very informative uh, newsletter that you can get from um, Clark and Esposito. And there I read about um, what is happening with the Plan S and transformative journal programs as it affects uh, the um, American Association of the Advancement of Sciences, which of course the flagship journal of is science. I'm not sure if this was your story or your remit, but uh, could you perhaps uh, explore that uh, difference, even at this level of the high-impact journals?
0: Yeah, yes. Well, first, uh, that's not a piece that I wrote uh, my, myself. And, and indeed, my partner, Michael Clark is the real expert uh, uh, on these particular issues. He, he's taken upon himself uh, to master all of these issues for uh, journal publishers. Um, but the, the issue that some of the most prestigious publications have uh, certainly is not in getting authors who are willing to publish it uh, with them. In fact, the problem they have is too many authors want to publish. with them; They're just overwhelmed with submissions. Uh, the problem they have is that increasingly the submissions to these journals are coming with requirements from the funding agencies behind the scientists' research. So the scientist submits something to a publication like uh, Science or the Journal of the American Chemical Society or Nature or the Lancet or the New England Journal of Medicine or any of the, uh, the small number of the top tier journals. And uh, uh, then you discover that this pu- article cannot get published unless it has a certain form of publication. And that typically needs a specific open access creative commons license, which may not be in the best business interests of the publisher. So the publishers have the problem that if they don't find ways of working uh, with these various uh, requirements, some of the, uh, of the authors are going to look elsewhere. Uh, so that is the competitive situation that they are now operating in. And it's not an easy one to resolve. Um, I would say if you step back from this question, what you see is that the funding agencies have essentially uh, without saying so, they say the opposite, but in fact, uh, they have really declared war on scientific uh, societies. They don't like the scientific societies. They want to undermine the prerogatives of those societies, and they want to be the arbiters of the scientific process and scientific outputs. Meanwhile, the professional societies say, well, no, that's our job. It's our job to police the people who are working in the field. So there's a real tension now between the funding agencies and the professional societies. Uh, and uh, if you had to say who's going to win this, uh, you'd have to say, well, the people with the funding are the most likely winners. Uh, that's on the principle that um, who, uh, who, uh, he who pays the piper calls the tomb. And the people who are paying the piper are the people behind uh, the open access movement.
1: It was just two weeks ago in Nature, an article about or entitled open science done wrong will compound iniquities. And there the interest was in the fact that the article processing charges, these are what scientists pay in order to be able to um, then submit and see their, their work published are perhaps becoming more expensive for people in, let's say, less elite or less central um, regions of the world, less elite uh, institutes or less central regions in the world, while the wealthy institutions and the wealthy regions are just better able to afford these. That, now that's a very different issue than what you're bringing up. I'm sure it's still an issue, but the question that you're bringing up is even, I find, it goes closer to the core, closer to the bone of this, because I've spoken with people who run uh, journals for editors and chiefs of of journals for um, societies. And they very much do see themselves as the, uh, let's not just say the protectors of science. They certainly want the best science being put out there, but they see themselves in their domain as the experts. And I don't know if the same can be said of the funding agencies that you're talking about.
0: Well, Uh, Therein lies a tale. (laughs) Uh, I think that's the the only thing really one can say there. Uh, There is a tension there. The people who are uh, handing out funding uh, believe that they should control all the way through to the final consumption of information, the entire process. Uh, They want to create an industrial process that's more efficient. Uh, They want to have uh, fewer intermediaries. They do not believe the intermediaries, namely the publishers, add value. They feel that the publishers subtract value. Uh, so there's a built-in tension there, and I do not, I do not see any obvious uh, resolution to that other than they will continue to battle this out, and authors are going to have to make some uh, very important career decisions about which way to go. Of course, the authors may not be given a choice. Uh, the authors may be under mandates, or which means they don't have a choice, or they make, may work at institutions that begin to mandate how and where authors publish. So it's, is this the worst thing that's ever happened for academic freedom? No, it is far from the worst thing that's ever happened for, for, uh, for academic freedom, but you are beginning to see the prerogatives of the researchers being undermined uh, very much by the institutions they work for and by the funding agencies that give them the money uh, to do the kind of work they want to do. Um, on that other issue you mentioned uh, about how um, the open science, open access movements tend to uh, increase uh, 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 some aspects that we would uh, not care for. You used the word, I'm not sure, did you use the word iniquities or inequities?
1: Uh, Sorry, and in, inequities, in I pronounced that. Yeah, not inequities, very, very different. Not evilness, but but just inequalness, yes.
0: Well, I do think that if they were increasing inequities, it'd be a much more interesting uh, story. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I think that uh, they are increasing inequities, but they have always been there. So that's not new, but yes, they they are indeed uh doing that. Um If you're looking for the business model that has the widest um, contribution to the overall uh, financial underpinnings of scholarly communications, the best model is the subscription model because more people have to participate in it and pay for it. Uh, Small libraries pay small amounts and big libraries pay big amounts. Um, And it distributes the cost of publication across the globe across all institutions. When you start to move to open access venues, the number of paying participants drops rapidly. It becomes very, very small. And as a consequence of that, the people who are paying the bills feel they have uh, a right to speak up and say how they want things to be done. So this is not going to go uh, away anytime soon.
1: This very much makes me think of some of the wording in uh, David Crotty's um, latest um, contribution to the scholarly kitchen. Um, I'll just quote the, the sentence here because it really seems to be speaking directly to the, some of the problems that open access can actually uh, create. I quote We live in a business environment, and business organisms have had open access thrust upon them and have adapted accordingly. These are the optimized strategies that have emerged. High quantity, low overhead publishing and controlling the means of production for every other type of publishing. end quote.
0: Yes, I, uh, David is both my editor of The scholarly Kitchen and his colleague at Clark and Esposito, and I have to say I agree with him completely.
1: One of uh, the other in the brief, uh, again, this, this, this newsletter of yours that, that uh, jumps out at me, uh, you've just said subscription, subscriptionization. Um, there's an article there about Pearson um, getting into the educational. Uh, is the edu- it is a major arm, in, of course, in educational publishing through subscriptionization so people not buying textbooks but subscribing to textbooks which i mean if you had said in the 1990s people would have thought you were absolutely crazy about the, about such an idea but 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 now it's happening um why is it that we have that subscriptionization in one area and yet in other areas we've got um the authors paying uh, for the for the research uh
0: that's a Fairly large question. Uh, Let's bear in mind that the college textbook market is fundamentally different from the academic publishing market, by which I mean research for researchers. Uh, The publications of science, the publications of uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association are fundamentally different from publications from Cengage or John Wiley or Pearson, uh, whose aim is to provide materials for classroom instruction. Uh, the world of classroom instruction uh, historically has essentially been funded by the students. Uh, you go to an institution and you then buy your textbooks. Uh, and since we're talking about, you know, young kids who may or may not have money, uh, uh, but they all would prefer not to spend money on textbooks if they could, a whole underground of textbook sharing and sale of used books and so forth has grown up over the years. And what this has done has made it uh, made it very, very hard for the Uh, textbook publishers uh, to stay afloat, the consequence of that is that industry has consolidated uh, to an extreme degree. By some measure, about 85% of all textbook sales go through four or five publishers today. Uh, That's an extraordinary bit of market uh, consolidation. Um, So the problem is that even in that environment where you're the top dog in the field, Uh, you have very, very high marketing costs. You you get Jane to buy your Introduction to Anthropology text, uh, but next semester, she's buying a book, not from Pearson, but from Wiley. And this next semester after that, she's buying something from McMillan. So what they are trying to do now increasingly is develop a mechanism so that when Jane or John is brought into the system, the marketing system, they're kept in that system in different ways. Um, and there are two primary ways this is uh, being attempted. One is uh, by actually subscribing to a specific book. Um, and uh, uh, in effect, the book becomes a lifelong reference tool. Uh, it's constantly updated. And in those constant updates, you stay abreast rest of the field. Uh, a good example of this, is some of the McGraw-Hill uh, works, where they've essentially aggregated any number of textbooks and created a common search interface. Uh, new materials added to these uh, every year. Uh, Access Medicine is the one that immediately comes to mind. Uh, So you can subscribe to that or a library can subscribe to that. And you can always have updated information and you remain a customer from from McGraw Hill uh, forever. The other way it's being done is, is the Netflix model where you take a whole library of textbooks and make them available for one low price. And the idea here is that if you get a student to purchase, <clears throat> excuse me, a subscription to your aggregation, like a Netflix subscription, you may uh, begin to discourage the student from wanting to take courses where other publishers' books are being used. Um, the wild card there is: what are the uh, instructors saying? Are the instructions? Are the instructors saying we want you to use the Wiley Calculus book, not the Pearson ca- Calculus book? What happens if you have the Pearson subscription? Does that mean you have the wrong textbook? There are a lot of open questions to be sorted out here, but the basic thrust of the business model is to try to reduce the cost of of, uh, finding new customers and keeping your existing customers semester after semester.
1: Well, thank you for that uh, view into into the textbook area. And uh, thank you also uh, for your time. You've been uh, very generous with. Um, One last question though, I I think I'm going to send you off on a fool's errand. (laughs) You used this expression earlier about looking into the future, Um, but some of the things that you've just told us now about um, the textbook as it is existing and is coming to exist about its updatability There's an interesting feature about its uh, Netflix-type aggregation, if you buy it into a bulk format, a library kind of format. I mean, these are things that are already appearing. They're not on the horizon anymore as to what the book is and is becoming. And I suppose my fool's errand to you is, what would you say? um, 2003, we had the process book. We're now 2022 what is what is the book going to look like for the student or the scholar in the next few years? I'm not going to put a definite number on it, I guess.
0: I think um, the book for the student is increasingly going to move in the direction of being the information environment for the course. Uh, books are evolving into courseware. Uh, if you think of what a textbook was traditionally, uh, you had an instructor, Uh, The instructor might be supplemented by teaching assistants. Uh, There were lectures, there were sections, there might be laboratory work. Uh, The book was only one component of that educational experience. Uh, You move to uh, another environment at the other extreme and you have online education where everything is being done not through any kind of live presentation uh, by an instructor, but through various recordings, uh, there are various workshops, there are different kinds of of, uh, testing banks and so forth. And the personal interaction of the uh, individual faculty member and the student uh, really has disappeared at that point. Uh, I think what we're in is a period where we're moving across the spectrum from the old model of an instructor in front of a classroom of 25 kids to a model now which is increasingly impersonal impersonal and in which uh, students are given tools to tailor their own educational experience so the textbook is evolving towards courseware and courseware itself is evolving into online education so that's uh, that's my uh, uh, what my crystal ball is telling me uh, this morning uh, but you know tomorrow may be different crystal balls are not very reliable on the issue of uh, publishing, for, uh, by researchers for researchers. Uh, I do believe that you're going to see um, uh, ongoing trends towards open access publishing. We're going to see ongoing consolidation uh, on the part of publishers. Fewer and fewer publishers will be able to make things work in this open access environment with all the funding funding mandates. Uh, So more publishers will consolidate in, in different forms. Uh, And that will then uh, make the negotiating positions between these large publishers and the funding agencies a little bit more pointed uh, uh, going forward. We're already seeing that uh, today. Uh, As an aspect of this, we're going to see a general erosion of the big brands in scholarly publishing. Uh, uh, The the very biggest might be able to get through all this uh, if they are smart and adroit. But the second tier brands are gonna be challenged by this environment uh, and the open access environment will not be a good environment for them going going forward. Uh, An interesting wrinkle, I think, is that when you look to the library as a source of funding in the subscription model, uh, increasingly you're gonna find that the funding is coming out elsewhere, not from the library. And the question is, what will librarians be doing? Uh, and some people believe that this is a death nail for libraries. Uh, others believe that libraries provide so many services that to focus narrowly on their collections capability is really misleading. Uh, my own view is that librarians are very, very smart people and they're resourceful. And what they're going to begin to do uh, as they lose control of the research materials uh, through the various mandates from the funding agencies and open access, uh, they're going to increasingly get involved with provisioning materials for the classroom. Uh, That is to say they're going to take over the acquisition of textbook material in the classroom. They'll be negotiating with these publishers uh, and um, they'll be bringing some of the principles of academic librarianship to the college textbook business where those principles really have not existed before. Just as a case in point Librarians don't like to purchase things that disappear at the end of the semester. Uh, we're going to see perpetual licenses for college textbooks when the librarian gets involved in negotiations. That's the kind of thing I see happening. So the, the future, I think that, you know, just to sum that up, I guess it's more consolidation, uh, more open access publishing, a reduced role of professional societies and the, and the branded publications, reduced roles in collections by librarians a diminished role for librarians overall and a migration of the textbook business into a student purchased area, into a library purchased area.
1: Well, thank you very much. That is Joe Esposito, senior partner of Clark and Esposito. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Joe. Goodbye.
0: Thank you so much, Daniel. It's been a pleasure.
1: And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication.